You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The text for this morning is Titus 1, 5-9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in humility, completely and totally dependent upon you uh, for every good thing that we desire to happen this morning. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and work in our midst. The word that created all things that created in your people spiritual life, we pray that that same word would now convict us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I remember the first time I heard someone talk about a church being healthy. I had heard speakers refer to churches declining, plateauing, or growing, but I had had never heard someone explicitly refer to the health of a church. And I'll confess that I didn't know exactly what the speaker meant, even though I was a youth pastor at the time. I was at a small conference in Washington, D.C., sitting in a church that dated back to 1867. I was there because the church had experienced a tremendous revitalization in the late 1990s and early 2000s. This revitalization was due in large part to an emphasis on what Scripture teaches about the health of a church. In fact, the pastor had written a letter to someone who had asked what they should be looking for in a church. And in that letter, he identified nine marks of a healthy church. As many of you know, that letter was later turned into a book. And the author, Mark Dever, has now been used enormously by the Lord to influence innumerable churches to consider what it means for a body of believers to pursue Biblical church health. In his little book called What is a Healthy Church, Mark writes, quote, A healthy church is not a church that's perfect and without sin. It has not figured everything out. It's a church that continually seeks to conform itself to the word of God. Unquote. And then he offers this 
summary, a healthy church is a congregation that increasingly reflects God's character as his character has been revealed in his word. Let me read that again. A healthy church is a congregation that increasingly reflects God's character as his character has been revealed in his word. Brothers and sisters, as individuals and as a church family, we will increasingly reflect what is true about God as we are increasingly shaped and influenced by his word. If we long to be respected and lauded by our culture, then we'll allow ourselves to be shaped and influenced by the popular trends and values of our culture. But if we long to reflect the truth, the beauty, the goodness, the love, the holiness of God, then we must allow ourselves to be shaped and influenced by his word. It is the word of God that creates, convicts, and conforms the people of God. So we want to make much of his word. We want his word to be in and through everything we do as a church. And you'll hear more about how we want to go about doing that tonight. But as we think about this idea of being shaped and molded by the word of God, uh, this thought came to my mind. My children love silly putty. And I'll be honest, I kind of love silly putty too. I think it's amazing how silly putty can be pressed against something or into something, really anything. And it takes on that form with incredible detail. You can even see the detail of your fingerprints in silly putty. But brothers and sisters, this is how the word of God and the people of God should interact. As a church, we will reflect the character of God more and more as we tirelessly press ourselves into Scripture's mold. We will look like God as we listen and obey him. Everything we've talked about so far in our life at Redeemer series has simply been an attempt to flesh out what I just explained. According to scripture, a healthy church, a church that is reflecting the character of God, will value biblical preaching, passionate evangelism, generous hospitality, joyful worship, and intentional discipleship. These are some of the fruits of what the Spirit produces in a congregation that is pursuing biblical health. These are signs of spiritual health. Well, this morning we're going to discuss another distinctive of Redeemer. And like everything else, this is something we desperately need God's wisdom and guidance for. We know both by experience and by recent events in the broader evangelical world just how important it is to have a clear understanding of what Scripture teaches about the office of an elder. We also know that if we're committed to developing leaders all throughout our church, then it begins with elders. So here's what I'm trying to accomplish this morning. For those new to Redeemer, I want you to clearly understand what Scripture teaches about elders. So if you've been here for a long time, you've been spoiled 
because you've had clear teaching on this topic over and over again. But if you get outside of this church and you look at the churches that surround this place, you will not find. You will not find churches where scripture. Informs. Leadership. So for those new to Redeemer, I want I want you to clearly understand what Scripture teaches about elders. For those who have been here through difficulty and uncertainty, I want to remind you of what you've already been taught. And I want to do this as a means of inviting you to pray. Pray for God's strength and protection over your present elders. And for those whom God has called and gifted to serve in the office of elder, who are not presently serving as elders, I want to fan the flame in your heart to pursue this calling with more energy and more excitement. So my hope, friends, is that you walk away with something more than a mere informational reminder regarding the office of elder. My prayer is that you'll leave this morning more convinced than ever that Scripture is sufficient and it's clear about how a church should be structured and how it should operate and how it should be led. And in this, I want us to be warned. If we decide at some point to just do our own thing, then we'll sacrifice our ability to display God's glory as a church. There's a lot at stake in a conversation like we're having this morning. So first, first, let me talk about the role of elders, the role of elders. And we're going to flip to a, a lot of different texts this morning. So you might want to just write them down or if you're quick, if you if you're a former sword drill champion, then this would be a great morning for you to show off your skill. The role of elders. The role of an elder is bound up in the terminology used for elders. Many different titles are used in the New Testament to describe the office of elder. The most common are elder, bishop, and pastor. Elder is the term used most often. In fact, it's used 70 times in the New Testament, with 20 of those uses referring to a unique group of leaders within a church. What's interesting is that all three of these words describe the same office. <clears throat> In fact, turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, here Paul is meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus. Elders is what he calls these church leaders in verse 17. But then look down at verse 28. Look at what Paul says to these elders. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the word for bishop. Same word. Be shepherds or pastors of the church of God, which he brought, which he bought with his own Blood. So you see one group of men referred to with all three of those terms. An elder is a recognized and biblically qualified leader set apart and gifted by God to provide oversight for and to shepherd God's people. That's why we call them under 
shepherds. They are under their chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Consider for a moment some implications of just a few of the statements I read in Acts chapter 20 just now. A pastor is called and commanded by God to watch over himself and all the flock. That is a profound and sobering task. It's also a good reminder that when God calls a man to eldership, he calls, he calls him to die to himself. That would be a good prayer request. That you would pray on behalf of your elders. God, I pray by your spirit that you would enable them to die to themselves. Right? An elder should never buy into his own hype. He, he shouldn't do that because he's actually aware of his own sinful heart. He's watching over himself. He knows intimately his own struggles. He knows his indwelling sin. A pastor who is intently keeping watch over himself will find it very difficult to be impressed with himself. Pray that. Pray that for your elders. If, you're, if you believe God may be calling you to the office of elder, cultivate this. Pray that the Spirit would do this work in you. A pastor here is also commanded to watch over all the flock. So we all know how difficult it is just to keep watch over ourselves, much less an entire congregation. Friends, again, this is a reminder that the call to pastor, the people of God, is a call to die to selfish ambition. Eldership involves pouring yourself out for the good of others, sacrificing your own dreams, desires, and comforts for the benefit of God's people. So let me ask you, how easily does that come to you? Pray for that. We would implore you, we would beg you, pray that God would do this work increasingly in our hearts. There is a sense in which this should mark all the people of God, but yet it should mark particularly elders. This is why it is so grievous when a pastor uses his position of spiritual leadership as a means of self-promotion. When the people of God, listen, when the people of God simply become a means of selfish gain, then the very essence of biblical eldership is destroyed. And ultimately, it will affect the way people view their chief shepherd. So you, you might be thinking how... How can an elder possibly live in such a selfless way? Well, it's the work of the Spirit. It's the process of sanctification. But he also must remember, just as the text states, that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has made him an overseer. In this sense, brothers and sisters, elders are not chosen by church members. They are simply identified 
not because they are impressive by any worldly standards, but because you can see the evidence of God's grace in their lives. You can see true humility. You have watched them pour out their lives for the good of others. You can affirm with confidence that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. It's not something they've manufactured on their own. Now, even though the terms for church leaders that I've pointed out in Acts 20 are used interchangeably, the one used primarily is elder. As many of you know, some, some have attempted to distinguish elder from bishop and establish an additional office, but that's, that's an incorrect conclusion. Titus 1, 5, and 7, and then 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2 bring the terms together, and they are un unmistakably referring to the same person. One New Testament scholar writes this. The New Testament only refers to the office of pastor one time, Ephesians 4, 11. It is a functional description of the role of elder stressing, listen, stressing the care and feeding of the church as God's flock. Just as bishop or overseer is a functional description of the role of elders stressing the governing or oversight of the church, we may conclude, therefore, that pastor and elder and bishop or overseer refer in the New Testament to the same office, yet together they give you a picture of what this role is. So that's just a, a brief glimpse into how the Bible defines and describes the role of an elder. But let's also quickly look at what Scripture has to say about the number of elders, because I think this is really important. And again, you're spoiled if you've been in this church or a church like this, but this is something that isn't stressed often enough. But it's so important, and it's clear in Scripture. So the role of elders, now the number of elders, and you'll see why this is so important. In past churches where I've served, I've heard, heard people argue, especially those who have never been in a church with a plurality of elders, they've, they've argued that every church should only have one pastor, a, a senior pastor, the pastor. They've said things like, someone's got to be in charge, or we hired one pastor, not a bunch of them. Well, my advice to these brothers and sisters was that they should submit all their opinions to the authoritative word of God. And what they will find, what we'll all find as we survey the New Testament is a clear picture of multiple pastors in each and every church. In fact, no clear example is found of a church organized under a single pastor. Friends, listen carefully to the following comments. First, Wayne Grudem writes, the New Testament, almost without exception, refers to elders in the plural. Throughout the book of Acts, elders are always plural. And then he lists out the 10 plus instances where we find that. Mark Dever observes, there are few exceptions to the plural usage. In 2nd and 3rd John, the writer refers to himself as the elder. Peter speaks to the elders and calls himself a fellow elder in 1 Peter 5.1. And Paul gives Timothy specific instructions regarding accusations against an elder. 1 Timothy 5, verse 19. However, these passages do not support the understanding of a single elder or pastor in a local congregation. 
The picture in the New Testament is that there's normally within a local church a body of elders, not simply one. Finally, John MacArthur concludes the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God can be seen in his ordaining multiple men to oversee a single local assembly. Much can be said for the benefits of leadership made up of a plurality of godly men. They com their combined counsel and wisdom helps assure that decisions are not self-willed or self-serving to a single individual. Brothers and sisters, not only is a plurality of elders the biblical pattern for church leadership, but it is a gift to every church member. When functioning appropriately, a plurality of elders increases accountability. But it also increases the level of care provided for a congregation. There are more gifted and godly leaders to care for the members of a single local church. Look around. This is beyond the ability of one single person. So God in his sovereignty has designed it to be this way and then he's raised up multiple men to serve a congregation this size. Our, our goal is that every member of this church would be cared for. When someone calls us or contacts us, we don't ever want to say no. But that's only possible when God's design for the church is being practiced. So you can see the wisdom of God in ordaining multiple men to oversee a single local assembly. It's designed to be a gift to church members, but also to elders. So do you realize, friends, that pastors need to be pastored? Pastors need to be pastored. It's easy to forget that pastors are growing Christians in need of sanctification. Pastors have disobedient children in difficult marriages. Pastors face unexpected financial crises and unanticipated medical emergencies. Some very well-known historical figures like Charles Spurgeon and hymn writer William Cooper regularly battled depression. In other words, it's, it's good. It's good to be reminded that pastors are members of churches too. They need shepherding and care just like everyone else. So Redeemer, a plurality of elders is not only the biblical pattern, but it's necessary. It's foundational. It needs to be in place if a church is to function in a spiritually healthy way. We believe that God will raise up in his time and according to his plan just the right men to serve this congregation as elders. But we also believe that we should be more proactive in the process of raising up leaders. Yes, the, the Holy Spirit calls and equips biblically qualified men for eldership, but a church must identify those men, which means that every member of Redeemer should be praying, praying that God will raise up more biblically qualified men to lead his church. But there's something else we're going to do as a church. 
And I would ask you to pray about this as well. Along with the help of the other elders, I'm going to start regularly meeting with a group of men who are on some level exploring a call to eldership. This will allow us to more intentionally multiply gifted and qualified leaders, some who will serve this congregation and others who we will joyfully commission to serve Christ in other places. This is an integral part of us becoming a multiplying church. So we broadly looked at the role of elders and the number of elders Finally, let's consider the primary responsibilities of elders. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. The roles and responsibilities of pastors fall primarily into two categories, teaching and governing. This twofold commission is seen in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Our text says this, let the elders who rule, so governing, rule well, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. You see both of those ideas together in one text. Paul also speaks of these responsibilities when he outlines the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 2, he writes that an elder must be able to, to teach. And then in verse 5, he refers to the elder's role in taking care of the church of God. So within this term, bishop or overseer, there is this inherent understanding of the governing role of the office. Paul exhorts the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5 to shepherd the flock of God, which implies a leading or governing role. This is also where the idea of Hebrews 13, 17 comes in. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse 17. If you remember, a little over two and a half years ago when I was officially installed as the, no, just kidding, a pastor here, John Piper referred to this text did an incredible job of unpacking it. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Friends, let me just mention that God has given you a group of elders who want to care for you. And we understand that we will answer to God someday for how we care for you. So please let us know. Let us know when you're hurting. Let us know when there's a need. Let us know when you find out about a need that someone else has. When you read the qualifications and the gifting of elders, you will not find omniscient anywhere in the text. So yes, we want to be plugged in and we, we want to be with you, shepherding you and caring for you, but we don't know everything that's going on. And it's, it's very difficult for us when we hear about a need that we failed to meet. But it's the first time we've heard about it. 
So help us help you, and it will be a joy for both of us. That's one of the implications of this text. This is also why the ability to teach is a distinguishing mark of an elder. You take these texts together. Paul then expands on the qualification to teach when he writes in Titus 1, verse 9, which we read earlier, that elders must be holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, to be clear, this teaching does not have to be the public preaching in the church. But it must include the ability to understand, explain, and apply doctrine to life situations. People have asked before why why we are intentionally fostering a shared pulpit. Why you hear somewhat regularly from most of your elders, those that have a desire to teach in this public form. That's because we think all of these men have something to offer. Their wisdom, their take on a text, their life experience, their ability to communicate it in a different way, all of these things weaved together will produce a stronger congregation and a congregation that really develops a love for the Word of God, not simply the Word of God taught by a single individual. We think that's healthy. We think that's good. We think it reflects what we find in Scripture. Again, thinking about the teaching aspect of elders, one author sums up this role combined with governing, so governing and teaching. This is what he writes. Speaking of elders, they are the doctrinal guardians of the flock and the overseers of the life of the church responsible to God for the feeding and care and ministry of the people. Friends, if we're going to function as a biblically healthy church, reflecting the character and nature of the triune God, then we must listen to him. We must follow his instructions. We are his church. This is not left to us to do whatever we want. Now, regarding the responsibilities of elders, as we've been talking about in this final point, let me draw your attention to a few more key texts. Turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. So a text that we studied not too long ago. Whether or not this is the initial instance of deacons and elders, it certainly serves as a wonderful example for what we find happening later in the life of the church. Verse 1, now in These days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer into the ministry of the word. The disciples were increasing in number. Increasing numbers always increases the need for ministry. 
Why? Because everyone coming into the church has needs, just like everyone already in the church has needs. It's impossible to grow numerically as a church without also growing in the sheer number of needs that have to be met. In this instance, God was sovereignly bringing Hellenistic widows into the church and they needed food, but they weren't getting it. It's not good. So some might be tempted to make this observation back in verse 2. It reminded us that there were 12 church leaders and they might be tempted to ask, well, what are they doing all day for heaven's sakes? It's their job. What are we paying them to do? Well, what they were doing is exactly what God had called them to do. Look at the second half of verse 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words, yes, the widows needed food, but not, not at the expense of the teaching ministry of the church. Notice it says that it is not right. That means it's wrong. It's wrong for a pastor to neglect the ministry of the word, even for something as noble as serving hungry widows food. This underscores, again, the foundational importance of understanding and embracing God's design for elders. If a church gets leadership wrong, everything else in the church will suffer. Back to Acts 6. What's the answer to their dilemma? We know the answer. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Why? Verse 4, Do this so we can continue to devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the Word. So, friends, this text undergirds both of the primary responsibilities of elders by emphasizing teaching and governing. They cannot sacrifice the ministry of the Word for anything, and they oversee the appointment of gifted servants to minister to the physical needs of the widows. Now again, we saw this when we studied Acts 6, but I want you to see it again, especially if you're wondering why all this deacon, elder, polity stuff matters. Yes, I, I know it's in the Bible, but why does it really matter? And I hope I've already answered that question, but let me give you another reason. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Under the sovereign hand of God, when the right people are doing the right things in a church and they're joyfully working together, the church will flourish. There is an undeniable connection between biblical structure and biblical health and biblical growth. That's not a pragmatic statement but it's a statement of affirmation regarding God's infinitely wise and good design for his church. Turn now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Scripture lays out for us the qualifications 
for this office. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And now turn back to Titus 1, which is where we begin. Titus 1, verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer is God's steward. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So here we find God's breathed out list of qualifications for his under shepherds, those called elders. And friends, if we believe that the Bible is both authoritative and sufficient, then we need to have the humility to trust Scripture. Here's what I mean. Christians are great, and I say Christians because I am good at this as well, and it is disappointing. Christians are great at reading the Bible and adding the phrase, yeah, but I know what the text says, yeah, but... And then we add to the scriptures certain qualifications that aren't there, or we subtract those we don't want there. And what we end up with is a list that reflects our desires, and it reflects our wisdom rather than God's. Which means that we want a church that reflects us rather than him. Consider, again, as we draw to a close, verse 5 of Titus 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. I think this is so interesting and informative. The churches in Crete were young. They were growing, and Paul instructs Titus to do something that is foundational. It's foundational to the health of, of the church. And what is it? Appoint elders. In other words, for the church to be healthy, if it's going to grow in health, it needs biblically qualified shepherds. That's absolutely foundational. So brothers and sisters, let me, let me offer you three concluding thoughts to help summarize what we've talked about this morning. And I know it's been a little bit of a different message than typically we do. First, emphasizing the importance of biblically qualified elders 
and seeking to train and affirm these men has a wonderful trickle-down effect. It will impact every ministry within this church. Remember what Scripture records in Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. God has not designed a church where elders and other gifted leaders are tasked with doing all the ministry, but God gifts leaders to equip all his people, every single church member to engage in meaningful ministry to others. In fact, this is, if I had to choose one part of this sermon that is a launching pad into what we're going to talk about tonight, it's this. How can we do this better? How can we do this moving forward? Equip every member of this church to engage in meaningful ministry. Second, just like we want to begin multiplying elders within this church by doing a better job identifying and training those who meet the biblical qualifications and those who aspire to the office, we also want to see the multiplication of leaders in all of our ministries. We want to do a better job of identifying and training new leaders in men's and women's ministry, in our youth and children's ministry. Dale is going to start training additional biblical counselors so we can better care for every member of this congregation. We want to do this in greeting and ushering and kitchen and everywhere. We want to do a better job of investing in others, coming alongside them and saying, I'll I'll walk with you as you cultivate gifts and skills in this particular area of ministry that will ultimately build up the whole body. Brothers and sisters, we want to be a church that is multiplying leaders for the fame of Christ and the flourishing of his church. Finally, according to God's design, elders do have a massive influence over the health of a church. But brothers and sisters, we, we cannot forget that the very best elders are still men. They are only under shepherds of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, our hope and desire for health and vibrancy as a church will not be found in any man or any group of men. It will be found wholly and entirely in our crucified and risen King, Jesus Christ. I begin today by asserting that the church exists to reflect God's character and display his glory. This is made clear in Ephesians 3.10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. I love how John Piper explains this wonderful verse, and he perfectly expresses my prayer for Redeemer. He says, the reason God created the world and called the church into being is so that he would have a sufficiently diversified yet unified system of mirrors with which to reflect the glory of his many-sided wisdom to the universe. God intends for this church to be a local expression 
of his universal church. Our destiny, therefore, is to be a corporate and visible and audible doxology to God. That's humbling, and I hope that's motivating. That you want to say, sign me up for that. Let's pray.